After that, there are none. Okay, I'm I'm happy you got your your technical glitches fixed because I am I am kind of anxious to talk about this movie because you know you know far more about it than anyone needs to know. What interruption? Hello, this is Max, and this is episode five of Max and Jason Watch a Movie. This will be the last week that uh, it's just me doing the introduction. Uh, we finally got a system ironed out, and uh, we'll be improving our introductions quite a bit. So enjoy. Today we're going to be covering 1978's Superman the Movie, directed by Richard Donner, starring Jason, who does it star? In order of billing, Marlon Brando, Gene Hackman, Christopher Reeve, and Margot Kidder. Oh, and Valerie Perrin. Brian Perrin, yeah. Actually, and I've never known how to pronounce her name. With these kinds of things, uh, my zoology professor just said, pronounce the name, the Latin name in this case, the Latin binomial, like you know what you're talking about and people will just believe what you're saying. So just say it with confidence. I say Valerie Perrin. You say Valerie Perrine, but say it with confidence and it'll be great. And That's the, a great idea. Who else is in it? Well, Ned Beatty. Uh, you are the the wonder kind of Superman trivia. I didn't know anything about this, but many years ago when we were talking, Jason and I were talking about this movie a lot. We've been debating Superman the movie for, well, some number of years. Long time. Yeah, and and Jason knew the names, the Salkinds, and I didn't realize who they were uh, or how important they were uh, in, the, in the field of science fiction movies until Jason hit me to it. All right, so Superman the movie. Yep. Kind of the first big budget, big screen superhero movie, right? I think it is. I, I can't think of anything even remotely like it. No. Uh, uh, there was a there was a Batman movie that was kind of a TV movie in 1966 that with Adam West. Yeah, yeah. But I don't think that counts. Yes, the famous one with the rubber shark and so forth hanging yeah. off of Batman's leg, yeah. And folks, before Robin's we move on, I have, to, I have to recommend that Batman, the movie, uh, that Adam West movie. You guys need to see it. Um, we're not going to review it. We're not even going to talk about it much, but you need to see it. It's a great movie. It's better than everything after Batman, Tim Burton's Batman. But it's, it's better than most of the Burton-verse of Batman movies. Yeah, I now think. that you mention it. It's great. But so Superman, the movie, the first of its kind. I mean, uh, it was the most expensive movie of the year, yes. the production value was the, it was the most expensive film. I read today that the credits cost more than most films. Actually, of the yeah, uh, in the comic book at the time, I had to I had to read this up. I had to read up on this because I didn't I didn't know much about Superman in the seventies, but he was going through to the extent that a non-existent being can go through things, he was going through kind of an existential crisis of relevance. He was, the, he, was the, he was the character no one wanted to write because A, he was too goody, two shoes, and B, he was a god. Nobody knew how to write him because how do you, how do you uh, like, who, who fights Zeus? There's no challenge for him. And Superman was very much in that kind of wheelhouse of almost indestructible God. So they didn't know what to do with him. They, they tried to make him more relevant. Uh, there was a really classic storyline uh, that is a blunder, I think. But like, this is the kind of thing they were trying to do to make him relevant. Lois went into the ghetto to uh, learn how African-American people lived, which is a noble kind of idea. But nobody would talk to her. And Clark says, well, I can, I can take you to the Fortress of Solitude and change your appearance. And so Lois... <laughs> Jason's laughing here. You guys can't see this. This is a visual medium. Lois goes in blackface, essentially, to to Goth, uh, to Metropolis's Harlem, and there, thereby, she tries to be. She tries to learn about uh, African American experience in Metropolis. Metropolis is a, is 
is a hard city to pin down. Gotham is obviously, you know, New York. But Metropolis, it's always been all over the place. Sometimes it's on the West Coast. Sometimes we think it's supposed to be L.A. Sometimes it's a gla- glamorous New York. Uh, it's, 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 a hard, it's a hard thing to piece together. It's easier to piece together in the Donner film, which we'll talk about in a minute. But, but that's the kind of thing, those kinds of stunts were some of the things that Superman was trying to do to be relevant. To little, to, to not much success. I think, and you, you can ex- elaborate on this because you'll know a little bit more about the production than I do. I think the Donner film is a flat rejection in many ways of that attempt to be relevant with gimmicks like like that or trying to make him trying to make Superman something other than what he always was which was a kid from Kansas who was raised by a couple of farmers that's that that's the heart of Superman I think uh some people will maybe disagree with that I don't know but, but I think that the heart of Superman is orphan kid raised by really nice loving people it's kind of a repudiation of the idea of genetics being destiny in some ways you know I mean it's kind of a repudiation of uh the idea of that which would be very much in the the uh, oh gosh the Schuster and Siegel the two guys who Got created it this time yeah yeah the the two guys who created Superman who were both Jewish Americans who were kind of themselves repudiating the idea of the Superman but they give us a Superman we can all kind of get behind but I thought Donner was kind of rejecting the idea of that you had to chase relevance by by being an antihero by being you know, dark by being, you know, any of the things that were going, he kind of rejects the whole anti-hero movement in Superman. But anyway, what do you think of that idea? No, I, you know, I agree with that. One of the things that's actually occurred to me uh, in reflecting on this film and also in reflecting in the, the Batman series that we just went over yep. is how uh, we talked last time when we talked about the Tim Burton's Batman, how there was this effort to kind of go get back or go back to the source, to the original idea of Batman and this kind of dark, you know, idea of Batman. And I really think that, uh, and I can get into it in a moment, but that what what Donner did, or what he was trying to do, what he wanted to do, is that he wanted to uh, create an, an absolute tribute to the Superman that everyone kind of knows. Like, you don't have to be a Superman fan to watch this movie and be, oh, this is Superman. This is what Superman's all about. This is, and, uh, uh, I kind of see Superman, and I think the film captures that. Uh, you just kind of mentioned that you know the, the repudiation of the Superman, and, and I agree. Superman to me is kind of like one of the maybe the kind of New Deal aesthetic superhero. Wow, well, I think I like that. I like that. Yeah, because because you know it was it, it was created during this time where the nation was flat on its back economically. And, and then suddenly this man comes from another planet who, um, who can help us and, and, and who can make us better than we are. Mm-hmm. And, I, and, you know, when I think of that time period, there was definitely kind of something in the air of, of Americans uh, you know, fighting evil. You know, there was a war and uh, uh, fighting poverty, fight, standing together, helping each other, trying to improve themselves against incredible odds. And Superman was kind of, uh, very suited to the times, and uh, and then also, but I think a lot of the uh, a lot of the ideals of that time, you know, the the, the honest press and, and yeah, you know, respect for the flag and in, in that wartime and this kind of thing. I I really feel that Superman, in his essence, really fits in very nicely into in the same way Captain America does um, in other universes. That, yeah, yeah, you know that. that 
he, he very much fits into the that era of of um, uh, of comic character, basically. Well, yeah, and and it, and it, one of the things I, I've always liked about Superman, and it's not a character I've always I've always liked. Uh, there are some great Superman stories in comic books, and there's a lot of great different Superman motion picture style kinds of things from cartoons to, to films to television series. Um, but I've always liked that Superman and as you say, Captain America kind of capture this idealized American. Um, uh, it's what we strive to be. And we'll, we'll get to the, to the really important Marlon Brando quote later on. But I mean, that's the, I think that, that is that is what's great about these characters. They're not perfect. They're somewhat naive, but but they speak to the best in Americans and and human beings generally. I think uh, so. I, that's what I like about Superman. Uh, you were talking about how Donner was capturing, trying to capture that uh, Superman that everybody knows, and it's interesting because he can go far back because Superman is almost as American as George Washington and the founding documents. It's an old character. It, it begins in uh, the date on the first issue is June, 1938. Uh, it probably was published in April, but, but uh, almost from the moment we have Superman as a cartoon, just a few years later, we have the first Superman moving picture. I think there's a 1940, uh, what was it, 48 and 51? There's some really early serialized Supermans right away. So these are serials, uh, for people who don't know this, uh, there used to be these things in the beginning of movies that were called serials. You'd get a chapter before your movie started. Instead of having previews or in addition to previews, you'd have like a, a cartoon and a serial show. Yeah, I don't know what the, all they were, but I, Superman had a serial and you'd get it at the matinee and you'd watch your movie, watch your five minute or eight minute Superman show. And then your, the feature film would, 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 would run. Uh, Superman had two of those and uh, I'm missing, messing up my dates here, but then almost on the heels of that, we have Superman, uh, the adventures of Superman, which begins this movie. Uh, so would you walk us through the opening really quickly of Superman the, of this movie? Yeah. The opening of the film, uh, uh, the opening scene. The opening scene. Uh, yeah, w w which, no, I mean, um, just as you described, I mean, it, it kind of, the first shot is you you have the curtains, you know, separating, just like yeah. you're in a theater. And uh, and then we have the, the whir of the camera. Mm -hmm. You know, this is kind of an old thing that we're watching. And uh, and then we have a voiceover uh, talking about the decade of the 1930s, kind of the thing I was just talking about. Yeah, yeah. You know, the nation was racked by the worldwide depression. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and then and then the statement about uh, the newspaper with its reputation for clarity and proof yep. uh, and truth, the Daily Planet. And then there's the model of the Daily Planet with the the kind of whirling yeah. 1930s, uh, you know, on the top of the building, which is not something that would be in the film. Before we get into the, the, the film, talk to us a little bit, expert, about the, about the production of this movie, because you know, you know far more about it than anyone needs to know. <laughs> this is true, I, I, I own that, absolutely. Uh, well, it, it is a very interesting production. Um, it, it was not a happy production. Nope. At no point was it a happy production, and that is because uh, the film was originally the idea of a, uh, a family of French film producers, the Salkinds, 
Alexander Folks, folks before Jason goes further, this is the first credit reveal of the real villains, I think, of this piece. When you see the Salkine's name come through, those are the real villains of the movie, people. But Jason's going to explain why. Go ahead. Well, uh, Richard Donner would agree with you. I think he's actually said that in commentary. <laughs> the the Salkine's, uh, French movie producers, and they came up with the idea to make a definitive film about Superman. They made a great decision right out of the gate. They hired Mario Puzo to, to write the screenplay. And Mario Puzo had written The Godfather. He had just finished uh, writing The Godfather film with Francis Ford Coppola mm -hmm. and was about to begin writing The Godfather Part Two. And in between that, he wrote this massive script for Superman the movie which is basically the plot of Superman one and two mm -hmm. combined. It was written as one movie. Yep. And and it, it was it was it was enormous. And apparently, I, I've read that Puzo was very interested in the Superman mythology. Like he went back to the original comics, and he picked up like really it's obscure. It, okay. No, his his uh, as a fan of comic books and as a as a as a sometimes avid fan of Superman. Not not a perfect Superman fan, but. I was marveling at the depth to which Puzo must have gotten into the DC archives because this was before fan service became a thing and Superman the movie is chock-a-block full of what we would later call fan service. Just things that will never come up again that Jor-El, for instance, is the person who discovers the Phantom Zone. The Phantom Zone is a dimension, like an alternate dimension that, that uh, Kryptonians put their prisoners in instead of something like that, instead of imposing like a death penalty on somebody. But anyway, that's something that didn't need to be said, but Puzo, I mean, that's just one among many things that he, he must have discovered while getting into the dusty archives at DC. It's brilliant. I, 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 I marveled at that Puzo's just dedication to the movie. Absolutely. And um, now apparently what he did though, is he turned the script in and he said, well, I'm, I'm going to be going to write the Godfather part two. Mm -hmm. So this needs revision. This is not done, but I can't do it. That's when the film, the project kind of went off the rails because the Salkinds then brought in a married couple, David and Leslie Newman, mm -hmm. who kept the story, but they rewrote the dialogue. They rewrote the story and they put in a lot of camp, which is what the Salkinds wanted. They, they were, I think the Salkinds were actually imagining the Batman television series, yeah. which was, which was fairly popular yeah. and was really everyone's kind of only frame of reference for that kind of uh, thing. So uh, that's the direction that they started to go. They went through several directors. They originally asked Richard Lester, who would later direct Superman two and three mm -hmm. to direct. And he said no, because he had no interest in comic films at all. They finally found Richard Donner, who had only done one film. Uh, at this point, Donner, who's a favorite of yours and mine, yeah, yeah. Uh, was mainly a television director. He directed Twilight Zone episodes and you know, lots of shows in the 60s. The only feature he had done up to this point, or major feature, was The Omen, which was he had just made. It was a big hit. It's a great mm -hmm. horror film, actually. And so they, they brought him in, and, and, and this is where things get back on the rails. They had already cast Marlon Brando. They had already cast Gene Hackman. Oh, really? All kinds picked them. They wanted them right out of the gate. It's very similar to the Jack Nicholson casting from Batman that, that you know, Brando, Jarrell, bam, first person that they cast. Gene Hackman, bam. I mean, they they zeroed in on them right away. So then Donner comes in, looks at the script and the state of the script, and is horrified at what he sees. Because it, it's it's very campy. It's very Adam West Batman. There's a scene that uh, that, that I've heard about where Superman swoops down and, and 
because there's this bald guy on the street. It's, it's Luthor, right? So he goes and he grabs him and turns around and it's Telly Savalas. Yeah. And, and, and Superman apologizes and Telly Savalas says, who loves your baby and gives him a lollipop, you know. It, it, the, the script was just full of stuff like that. Yeah. Donner did not want to make that film. Yeah. So he brought in, if, if you notice in, in the credits, there, it said creative consultant Tom Mankiewicz. Yeah, yeah. Tom Mankiewicz, by contract, could not be put in this screenplay by, but he basically wrote all the dialogue for the film. Like okay. he, he, he rewrote everything. He took all the camp out. There's still humor in the film. Yeah. But he and Donner were both agreed that this should be a tribute to the original uh, Superman. And they wanted to create kind of a, almost like a mythology uh, element to it. They wanted, they wanted the story to be big, which Puto's sto original story was, was very big. But the original plan was that they were going to film Superman 1 and 2 together uh, as one film, the same way that's actually done quite a bit today. I believe it was done with the Lord of the Rings films. Yeah. Back, to, Back to the Future 2 and 3 were shot as one film. So it's actually done pretty successfully today. The Salkinds kind of invented the idea. It's a great idea. They had, well, they had done as, uh, two films, The Three Musketeers. They, now, the Salkinds have gotten in hot water. This is their, their villainy. They signed all these actors, again, a big all-star cast to make this film, The Three Musketeers. And they signed them to do The Three Musketeers Project, yep. as I do my air quotes there. And then the, the, the cast were shocked, shocked to find at the end of the first film that credits rolled and that this part two was going to be made into a different film. And they were not paid for two films. So there was a big to-do about it. So quick question. all kind yeah. How many of the cast of the Three Musketeers sued the Salkinds over that? I don't know about the lawsuit part of it. I know the reason the Salkinds finally gave in to them is because they needed to do reshoots. Ah. And, no one would, and no one would come back. Well, so because yeah. uh, I, I was reading today that Brando, Hackman, and I think Donner all sued the Salkinds yep. uh, at some and, point. And, and would not come back yeah. for the sequel. Um, so, yeah. With the Salkinds, there's kind of a theme here. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, they did, they were up front with everyone, hey, we're making two movies, yeah. but we're going to film them all at the same time. But it went over budget. Uh, it went over schedule. Salkinds were not happy with what Donner was doing. Yeah. Uh, they were putting a lot of pressure on him. And the way things ended up, Donner completed the whole first film and about 70% of Superman 2. And uh, then they decided, because it was, it was going all over budget, that they kind of stopped working on Superman 2 and they just focused on the first film to get that done. Yep. And, and so they did, and the result uh, was released, I believe, in December. It was a December release in 78. So, I mean, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the box office success that it had was uh, throughout 79. Uh, it, was, it was a big hit. It was a big uh, hit, yeah. You said that it was, uh, it was very expensive. I, I read somewhere yesterday that it, it was the most expensive film up to that point. It was, yeah. It was also, though, it turned around and was the highest grossing film. For, I mean, it had a record for that. For I think it made, at the time, so the budget, I think, was $55 million for Superman, the movie. And then it turned around and made $300 million. And that's a, lot of, that's a lot of movie. That's a lot of tickets. That's a lot of butts and seats. I mean, it was a hugely successful movie, especially for a December release, you know. Uh, yeah, oh yeah. Uh, uh, I don't know how many theaters it was in. Uh, now, of course, you can boost sales by having it in a lot of theaters and starting your weekend on Wednesday and a lot of tricks like that. I don't know if they did any of those little tricks to boost their sales, but. Yeah, I don't know. Um, 
Sorry, guys, we're not great researchers. Podcast over, <laughs> bye. Um, uh, but it was a hugely successful movie. And sorry, I interrupted you and I lost my train of thought. Jason, take back over. I'll have another sip of wine. Of course, there's going to be a lot more to talk about when we talk about Superman 2. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, obviously the, the drama kind of moves on from there. But Donner was able to finish uh, this film. And the reaction to it was just very, very, very positive. And, and I, I, I've seen people interviewed who were involved in the production. Uh, Jeffrey Unsworth one of the great cinematographers. This was his last film. Okay. And uh, I guess during Christopher Reeve's screen test, because they actually, I mean, they had Brando and Hackman cast right out of the gate. Yeah. They they really struggled with Superman. They, like they knew, well, you know, if you, don't have, if you don't have a good Superman, you don't have a movie. So many people, they were going unknowns that I know that they were looking at known people. They they auditioned and off, they offered the role I know to Redford who wanted yeah. too much money. They wanted it to, they offered it to James Kahn, who said, you'll never get me in that suit. They offered it to Nick Nolte, who was probably too drunk. And I mean, and that's just, those are just the names I remember off the top of my head. They offered this movie to everybody. I, I know that James Kahn's interview many years later, the, the interviewer asked him, were you actually offered the role of, of Superman? It's like, yeah, but they offered that role to everybody. They probably offered it to J to Marlon Brando himself, you know, just trying to get anybody with a big name to get in that role. Burt Reynolds was in the running for a little bit, but they rejected him. Sylvester Stallone campaigned really hard for the role, which would have been terrible, everybody. If you, <laughs> you're entertaining the idea that he would have been great. You're wrong. Just just don't even do it. But the, the rumor has it that Brando nixed that as well. Like he didn't want Sylvester Stallone in the role. They had a little feud, I guess, Brando and Stallone. Or Stallone had a feud with Brando. I bet Brando didn't ever pay attention to Sylvester Stallone, except to say, oh, you aped my, my character from On the Waterfront with your movie Rocky. But everybody wanted to be Superman. And they were hesitant. I know the Salt Kinds and, uh, were a little hesitant to go with Christopher Reeve because he was a bit skinny when he started. But everybody, Christopher Reeve went to a bodybuilder of of special cinema provenance. Do you know who he went to to get bid? No, David no. Prowse. Oh, I, I think I did know that, yeah. So, so for, for, for those of you who are, who shamefully don't know who David Prowse is, David Prowse was the guy in the Darth Vader suit. He wasn't the voice, that was James Earl Jones, which I'm sure everybody knows that, but only true geniuses know that the guy in the suit was a guy named David Prowse, a bodybuilder. I think a British bodybuilder. <laughs> now I've gotten myself in hot water for being uh, like I'm in the know, but I don't know where he's from or anything. But but David Prowse got Christopher Reeve in shape for the role, so he went from 165, 70 pounds to a hundred to 210 pounds, and his physique changed so much that they had to change his costume over the course of the of the shooting because he got bigger. And uh, he looks different in some scenes than in others because he's a bigger guy. Anyway, another little production trivia note that I know about is that they changed the color of the blue suit about midway through because they were having so much problems with the blue screen. Back before they used green screen, they used a blue screen and, and his suit would just disappear into the into the blue screen and they couldn't composite shots. He would just kind of blend. Superman would also be, it would be like he was had a cloaking device on and it would be like a Superman's head flying across the, the countryside because the suit was the same color as blue screen. But anyway... Everybody and their brother wanted to be Superman. Continue, oh, and, I'm sorry. And, and they, well, and, and they, they struggled, by the way, as an assumption, you know, going off of that. They struggled to figure out how they were going to get by. They considered animating him. Yeah. Like, like 100% animating him. Oh, wow. You know, yeah. Like, in fact, I, I saw some test footage of, like, 
zip, you know, like it, it was like a cartoon. And they were like, no, we can't do that. You know, we said that you can believe that a man can fly. We've got to make this work. But anyway, I guess that during the casting, they did a screen test and Jeffrey Unsworth, the cinematographer who shot the film, was behind the camera. And I guess, and, and the scene that they did was when Superman comes to Lois Lane's apartment. And I guess that when Christopher Reeve, you know, came in and said, good evening, Miss Lane, Jeffrey Unsworth just kind of looked away from the camera and like raised his eyebrows like, oh, what is this? Yeah. You know, like there was a certain kind of like, man, that guy's Superman kind of presence that he had that sold the production team. I, I don't know how long it took the Salkinds to, to, to bow to it, but uh, I, I um, there came a moment where they knew. Like they knew that this is our guy. I was writing in my notes today about uh, Christopher, Christopher Reeve ends up playing Superman. And I have to say that he is perfect. Like I like uh, Henry Cavill uh, yeah. as the new Superman. I think he's a great yeah. Superman. But I think that Christopher Reeve is both Clark and Superman. And he does such a good job of selling Clark as not Superman. Like he's a believable kind of character. He's kind of nerdy. He's, he seems, he makes himself somehow seem smaller than Christopher Reeve really is. He does a thing with his voice that he's obviously affecting a nerdy kind of guy, but he does it better than like a lot of people who do this kind of affect, who, who, who make some kind of affectation. His seems very natural and very real. Clark feels like a real character, despite the fact that he kind of is a character that, that, that Clark is, is playing. Because we see two different Clarks in the movie, which we'll get into in a second, but because uh, there's the, but we'll get into it in a second. But you have to buy the transformation. You have to buy that nobody believe. nobody says, fuck, it's the Superman with glasses on. Only, I think, only a special actor could have made that work. You know, you're absolutely right. Uh, the scene that I always point to to illustrate that, because uh, I don't know if you know this, but Christopher Reeve based his Clark Kent on Cary Grant playing uh, in uh, Bringing Up Baby, I believe. Yep, yep, yep. And, yeah, and, uh, and, and and if you see uh, Bringing Up Baby, it, you know, you can, you can definitely see that, but it was a brilliant choice to channel that. And there's the scene uh, after after he and Lois do the fly through the city, and then they come back down, and then she's she's like in a trance, and he's just enjoying the hell out of it, and she goes yeah. to the bathroom, and he takes the glasses off as Clark Kent, because Clark yeah. Kent's now coming. And I, I swear in my imagination, he grows like six inches. Well, well, he does. So so everybody in the film, uh, there's a scene where Superman and Lois Lane go on a little flight. Uh, Superman's doing an interview for the Daily Planet for Lois, but he's also kind of flirting with Lois. And he comes back. And this is a brilliant scene, too, by the way, because this is done in one take. Superman says goodnight, and he leaves Lois, and he flies away. And then, so we've just spent, like, a long scene with Superman as uh, 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 Christopher Reeves as Superman. And he flies away. And then Lois is in the trance that you were just talking about because she's just had this wonderful date. Though how that is the case, I don't know because there's a part of it. He drops her, and she falls almost. She falls like probably a thousand feet. I would be my ass would be chaffed about that. You know, <laughs> I, I would have expected her adrenaline to be like ah, and then but but she's she's she she's had a good night for some reason. And uh, anyway, Superman flies away in a great shot where they use the flying effect that they do. That's a double, by the way. As he flies away, that's not Christopher Reeves. Because in one take, they follow Lois from her balcony. Lois, by the way, for a reporter, has a beautiful apartment. It is a wonderful, <laughs> wonderful apartment. I, I was thinking, my God, that's a great apartment. And she walks from her balcony into her house to a knocking at the door, and then Clark comes in. And it's Christopher Reeves. It's the same guy we just saw playing Superman. He's mousy. 
and Lois is not really tracking him very well, and she goes to get ready for their date. And the scene that Jason's talking about is uh, Christopher Reeve is by himself in her living room, and he takes off his glasses. His expression changes, and his shoulders drop, and he kind of stands up straight. And you're like, my God, that's why we don't think and, he's and Superman. His, and then, and because he's going to tell her. Yeah, he's about and, to tell her. And, and suddenly, he's got the Superman voice. Lois, there's something I have to tell you. And then I'm really, and then he puts the glasses on. And then even for us, it's, we doubt if we saw what we just saw. Yeah. Because he's back to the shoulders. And I mean, I was really nervous about tonight. And, 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 <laughs> and then I'm going to, but I said, I'm going to take her out for the night of her life. Yeah. <laughs> but well, it's great. I think that is an astoundingly acted scene because we barely believe our eyes. I mean, Christopher Reeve does a phenomenal job. And it's an, I think, Critics at the time noticed it too, I think. I mean, it was critically a well-received movie. And no, it's it's a brilliant scene. And I mean, everybody in the film is is good in this. There's not a, I don't think there's a bad acting piece in the film. Uh, yeah, I agree. So so that, so that guys, that's the basic uh, production notes. Anything else you want to add about the production notes? Uh, anything? No, I, I, I think that's it. I mean, it's, uh, it, it was a slog. Like there oh, so was a lot. There was a lot of doubts that it was going to actually happen. I'll add a few production notes that I've read about. The Salkinds asked for and got some real A-list alpha personalities. Brando, I know, is always a pro- is a notorious problem on any set. I know he came in and did twelve days of shooting. First twelve days. Yeah, he wouldn't re- he wouldn't learn his lines. I mean, that's part of his method. I know some people get upset about that. One of the things, for those of you interested in this sort of thing, Brando used to never want to remember his lines because he would feel like he was—he would sound rote. So one of the things he would do was tape bits of his lines across the set. So he would like have some of his line on part of a desk and then he would have maybe the rest of his lines up on the ceiling. And so he would always kind of be, he would be organic. I mean, this would have probably driven a guy like Sir Lawrence Olivier mad it drove every yeah. director. It drove every director Brando ever worked with mad. But I think that whatever Brando did, it worked for him. But he didn't want to learn his lines. And one of the things I thought was really funny, Donner says in an interview and kind of in a complainy way, Brando says, "Well, why don't we roll during rehearsal? You never know. We might get lucky." But Brando just didn't want to shoot any longer than he had to, because Brando, I think is a guy who's who's a great actor, but he has a lot of contempt for his own profession. I don't think that he ever, I don't think he ever really liked it that much. Well, and, and I know that like, he was well paid. Oh, he he and, he yeah. walked away with a lot of money. And, um, and, and, and he took it seriously, but that doesn't mean that he believed it. Oh, know? no, no. I, I, I know Christopher Reeves accused him of phoning it in, but I think his Jarrell is really nice. And I'll get into oh. that in a bit. Uh, and then there's Gene Hackman who is a notorious asshole. He refused to shave his hair. He refused to wear a bald cap. He even refused to shave his mustache. Yeah. And and Richard Donner, the director, in a masterful stroke says, hey, if you shave your mustache, I'll shave mine. Gene Hackman says, all right. He shaves his mustache. And then Donner takes off the fake mustache he was wearing because Donner never had a real mustache. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> but Hackman was, Hackman was kind of a of a bear on sets. He, he he took himself very seriously as an actor, which is weird. A, a great actor. Marlon Brando's a great actor, but Brando never ever takes himself seriously in interviews as a great actor. But uh, so there's, there's all the problems behind the set. Somehow though, they led to the movie that we got. I mean, it's a miracle. So guys, we've, we've talked about the production. We've talked about a little of the drama behind the set. What is Superman the movie? Basically, it's an origin story. Uh, the best quick synopsis I've ever seen, and this is 
This works for this movie too. The most efficient and neat summary I've ever seen of the Superman story, the basic outline of it, came from Grant Morrison and Frank Quietly's All-Star Superman from, in issue one on the very first page, which was a splash page. And the caption, it was just four panels, and the caption of each panel said, Doomed Planet, Desperate Scientists, Last Hope, Kindly Couple. So it's an origin story for Superman. Go ahead, if you got, if you have an idea, how would you synopsis the movie? Well, see, I agree with that. I mean, I think that this movie was intended to set the stage. Interestingly, when I was younger, that's how I saw it. It's like, well, you've got to have the origin story. You got to get that out of the way. Yeah. I think the movie is is definitely more than that. I think that I I also think though that um, it's difficult to understand the sweep of this story without also tying it to the next one because they yeah. were intended to be one story. Yeah. But uh, but yeah, this is the origin story. This is the establishment of the Superman character and the establishment of his important relationships. This yeah. film has a lot to do. It does. Well, it's interesting that they got. It's almost dare I say, a Marvelized version of a DC story because it's very efficient. This is the basic Superman story, guys, for anybody out there who's lived under a rock. Um, Superman is a kid named Kal-El whose planet is imperiled. His father warns everybody that his planet's imperiled, but people say, nah, it's fine. If you say anything else, you're gonna get yourself in trouble. Uh, Jor-El is his father. Uh, Jor-El is a great scientist and an important leader in Krypton. They they threaten him and they say, "Hey, you can't tell her, you can't you can't incite panic with your crazy science talk." And Jor-El's like, "All right," and he sends his kid away to Earth, Kansas specifically, Heartland, America, uh, wheat fields, big sky country, and uh, and that's where he learns a lot of his values until he uncovers his his own origins and makes his way to Metropolis to be a reporter. Uh, would you say I've hit all the major points, anything? Absolutely. Um, all the beats right there. Now in this film, and I think this owes a lot to Mario Puzo's script. Uh, there's so much fan service in this origin in this Superman, the movie. If you don't know there's a sequel coming, there's a lot of stuff that just seems like irre irrelevant world bending. World building, sorry, world building. The Tribunal, I remember as a kid, I don't know if you felt this way. I love this movie as a kid. I'll just get that out of the way right now. I remember in being a little confused by the trial that happens at the beginning of the movie. The movie after the credits opens on Krypton and a trial of three people. Jason, you want to lead us through this bit? Do you want me to do the, the, the lines? No, I mean, this I'm pretty mindless curious. aberration. No. Yeah. Uh, um, uh, G General Zod, Non, and Ursa. Yes, and uh, oh, it's disappointing. The wine has ended, but the movie hasn't, so let's continue. Um, but they have this trial, and it's really, I found it to be, even watching, even rewatching it uh, over the past couple days, I found it to be kind of a nice, intense scene. These people tried to foment a rebellion in Krypton, and uh, Jarrell is basically the prosecutor, and he reads out the charges and condemns them to the Phantom Zone. And then they disappear, and they are never seen in this movie again. Yeah. And I thought, even at the end of it, I thought, well, that was weird. What happened to those guys? You know, that's what I thought. Um, because they just, they don't, Zod, Nan, and Ursa don't show up again. And they were really neat characters. And we sense there's some history. We get some history sensations between Zod and Jor-El. The Tribunal condemns Jor-El, uh, not Jor-El, but Zod and his uh, accomplices to the Phantom Zone. And Terrence Stamps, Zod says, the 
the verdict must be unanimous, Jorel. That means, and he basically puts it on Jorel. It's up to you to to decide, and your decision. I will, he basically says, "I'll hold you responsible for what happens next." And a lot I think of, it, uh, there's a lot, and in that moment, there's a lot of quick cutting close-ups of oh. Zod and Jorel and Ursa and Nan, mm -hmm. which really heightens the tension. Like you can feel the hate just dripping. Absolutely, and you've been known to disagree with the council, and. One of the great scenes, and this is why I don't, I can't agree with Christopher Reeve that, that Brando was phoning it in because of this perfectly timed bit where he flashes the judgment crystal and he's not intimidated by Zod at all. And he doesn't respond to Zod verbally. His verdict is known. You know, he, just, he basically ignites the crystal and it's gonna send them to the Phantom Zone. And it's a, it's a scene of such resolve from Jor-El I mean, these are dangerous people, but Jor-El has bigger fish to fry, I think, and he's not intimidated by them anyway. Interestingly, Jor-El is wearing the S yes. that his son will come to wear in the later film. I didn't realize this, but according to several different pieces of reportage that I read about this, that was Brando's idea. He said that, that Jor-El should wear, it hadn't been done before, but he said Jor-El should have this, the... I didn't, because now um, I recently, uh watched with my son the first couple episodes of the Supergirl movie. Mm -hmm. And they incorporate that. That you, I think she says, this is our family crest. Yeah, yeah. What, not crest, whatever it is. Yeah, but yeah. I mean, so now, I didn't know that. I assumed that that was actually part of the mythology. And it's interesting because in a later, let, let, me, let me finish this, but uh, we'll, we'll come back to the tribunal in a second. But in a later scene, we see a lot of crests on different people. But apparently that was Brando's idea. It's a brilliant idea. Because the S for Superman is dumb. Yeah. It's a dumb symbol. If, if S means Superman, right? Yeah. Right. If, that, if that symbol means Superman, it's dumb. It's a great icon, I think. Yeah. You know, I, I think DC has been really good at coming up with like icons, like the Green Lantern icon, the Superman icon, the bat symbol, the flash symbol. Go on. I mean, it's a great piece of design. They're very good at, I, they've, they've been very good at that historically. I think that the idea that it's part of the Kryptonian language, the, that, that symbol, I, I think it's great. Um, and a lot of different people have them. But something I noticed that makes me think there are problems in Kryptonian society, women don't have the sign on their symbol. The, the great scientist Von Ahn, who will argue with Jor-El about the fate of, of uh, Krypton, she doesn't have a symbol. Her, his wife, I can't remember Kal-El's uh, mom's name. Do you remember Lara. her mom? Lara. Uh, Lara. 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 Yeah. Lara. Uh, she doesn't have a symbol. And so, I mean, I it's, it's, it's strange. I, I just noticed it today because I was like, do they have the Superman? Do they have the... I was wondering if they would have the iconography of the house they came from or would they have the house that they married into or whatever how that worked but the women don't have signs on their on their chest yeah which i guess i don't know if that if that uh, connotes that it's a a patriarchal society although as you pointed out that character she is like, like right up there with him in terms oh, of yeah. being respected as a scientist well i mean yeah because uh i can't remember the character's name but uh it, there's a scene everybody where uh Jor-El is making an impassioned plea that Krypton has limited time and that the planet should be evacuated. And somebody says, ah, Jor-El, you are among the greatest of Krypton scientists, but so is Von Ahn. And then she comes in and she's basically the counterpoint to his, uh, to his worries. And he, and it's a neat scene. 
but she doesn't have a crest. And I thought that's interesting, but you're right. She does have, she does seem to, her voice actually ends up being the one that sways, that has, has the council's ear because nobody wants to hear, I guess, about. Defer to her. They do. You know. Yeah, I, I, I had not noticed that about the yeah. crests, that the, the women didn't have them. And, and it's interesting too, because like, while the women don't have a crest, there's an interesting debate in the film, and I don't know if you registered this, but I watched it a couple times, once today, and then I watched the director's cut, uh, sorry, the other day, and then I watched the director's cut today. There's an interesting debate just before uh, Jor-El and Lara Zor-El, uh, Lara-El, uh, send baby Cal off to Earth, and they have a very reasoned debate with each other. She is hesitant to let Cal-El go, and she's offering very reasonable counterpoints to Jorel's. Well, he should go because X. And she's like, but he'll be isolated. He'll be alone. He'll be. And then, and then Jorel is basically highlighting how strong and powerful he'll be. Interesting note for astronomers, I think, and, and students of sci-fi. When we first see the Kryptonian solar system, we pass a swollen before we get to Krypton, we pass a swollen red giant. And that should be an indicator to anybody that the solar system has a very limited lifetime left. And when we get to Krypton too, this Krypton is devoid, it looks like, of a biota. Like it looks like a cold world. It looks like its tectonics have frozen. It does yeah. look like it does look like a world to me in decline. Some people with modern eyes might look at these effects as kind of uh, cheesy, but I think they're very effective. Even the destruction of Krypton. Anyway, I've talked a while. Why don't you talk a little bit? Sorry, Jason. Well, well, I mean, actually, uh, you raised some very interesting questions there, and it would be very interesting, you know, for someone, some science fiction writer, to come up with some reason as to why as to why that is, I, because. I always felt like that the production design and, and just the way the Kryptonians kind of carry themselves, they're almost like these, um, these figures out of, uh, out of Plato's Academy. You know, they're, they're, they're very, they're not Vulcans, but they're, uh, they live according to reason and justice and all this mm -hmm. kind of thing. And that's, and that's where their society is at this yeah. point. And, and Jor-El, uh, he does not lie to them. No. He says, neither I, nor my wife will leave Krypton. Yeah. And he was very lucky that they didn't call him out. Like, what, what about your kid? You know? yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, but uh, uh, so, and, and you know, the, the other piece, because really it, it's kind of a three act movie, really. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and, and this is the first act. And the first act is differentiated from the rest by the production design. Yeah. Well, there are yep. three. There, there are three very visual chapters. I think you know. There's Krypton. Very. There's there's Kansas, and there's Metropolis. And I think those are and, the. And every element of those three chapters is unique, and is is a, a noted contrast from the other ones. Yeah. So because in this one, the dialogue. I mean, it's not Shakespearean, but certainly just you know the phrasings are just a little bit kind of posh, I guess. It's, 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 I think I think formal is the word you're looking formal, for. Formal, yeah, yeah. Um, because Jorel addresses them very formally. One of the things I like about this chapter and about Brando's uh, Jorel is like Christopher Reeves accuses him of being a phoning it in, but what I get out of Brando's Jorel and uh, I can't remember the actress's name, and I, I feel bad about that. Thanks to the power of Google and IMDb and the magic of modern editing, I can now tell you that the actress who played Lara L. was Susanna York. Lara is not phoning it in, but 
kind of a deep resigned sadness. They have made their case. They have the data for whatever reason. Well, Jorel says later, vanity is the reason. I think at least in the director's cut, he says vanity is the reason. Yeah. People wouldn't listen to him. The council doesn't listen to him. When the council listens to him on almost other matters, they listen to him, you know, on the charges against Zod and his cronies. They didn't listen to him on this. And I just, I, I really like Brando's Jorel just because it's a sad guy. Um, even the algorithm that he basically imparts to Clark, you know, on his journey is a, kind of a sad guy. And I mean, he probably couldn't hide that from whatever whatever program he had copying his his mentality onto the crystals that would talk to Clark on his three or four year journey. But I really liked Brando's Jor-El. But Gwen, you were telling me a little bit about what you thought of Krypton. And yeah, well, I I, I just that entire sequence has that unique production design. Mm -hmm. John Williams. We haven't talked about the John Williams. No, no, yet, yeah. But but certainly his uh, his uh, theme for Krypton is very distinct mm -hmm. and uh, uh, very memorable, very regal. I, it, it always stuck out as a kid. Yeah. And, um, but, but it's something that actually kind of sets that scene apart. Yeah. And, and kind of when, you know, during those scenes of the movie, we are definitely aware that we are in a different universe. Yeah. And, and we're with a, a different kind of people who we're not going to be with for very long. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 I just, and I just love how those scenes are shot. I, I, I love the, the dialogue in those scenes that they, they interact. I, I mentioned the editing, you know, during the, uh, during the trial. And I think that, and we'll get to it next time with Superman 2. Yeah. This trial, the way that it is shot, is so much better than the little piecemeal thing that they give us in Superman 2. Because, because they go yeah. over this again in the next movie. Yeah. I really adore how that scene is, is, is done. I think, I think Terrence Stamp is great in that scene. Oh yeah, yeah. And, and as a child, you know, with the, the faces against, you know, the the, the the faces, you know, with in the blackness and so forth. I always found that scene to be kind of frightening as a child. Oh, I did too. I I mean, it's classic. I think in some ways, '70s science fiction filmmaking, um, kind of high concept. These big, the tribunal is made of these faces on the wall. I almost wonder if they weren't scared to be around Zod and be held responsible for this. Only Brando's Jor-El seemed to have the resolve to be in the room with them. Yeah, I think that it was, it was high concept. The, the Krypton of Donner's film is stark, almost, it's almost stark blacks and whites. Yes. You know, uh, until Krypton falls. And at that point, it becomes almost this neat little homage to Dante's to images of the Inferno that I've seen, you yes. know, about paintings that I've seen. Do you know if Donner intended that? In, in, at, the end of, at, the end of the, at the end of the Krypton chapter, the planet, of course, blows up. That's the, that's the mythos. Uh, Superman's home is destroyed and he has to be sent to Earth. Um, but when the planet's being destroyed in Donner's film, it almost looks like images of, I don't know any of the artists, but I've seen, as a Catholic child, I've seen so many images of painted images of hell right yes and that is what the destruction of krypton reminds me of uh, i i agree with that i agree with that the the, the bodies falling forever you know yeah. no they no, don't I, as we'll see at the end of that scene <laughs> right 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 uh i i agree with that i have not found anywhere where donner or anybody else has said that that's what they were going for mm -hmm. but i think that they clearly were and, and that scene it's kind of a they it's they li they linger on it it's horrifying. 
Yeah. Like it's a it's a it's kind of an eerie scene, almost uh, Lovecraftian imagery of horror in space. You know, I don't know if this happens in the the theatrical the theatrical cut, but in the Donner cut, we do get to linger on some of the people that rejected Jorel's hypothesis. We get to see Von Ahn, I think, the scientists who didn't think Jorel was right, and the members of the council who went along with that, who, who resisted the truth. They look a little unhappy with their <laughs> choices as the yeah. world turns red around them. And I, I think it's really effective filmmaking. Um, and for a PG movie, it's as horrifying as it could be. As it could be, I think. And as 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 the planet's being destroyed, we see Clark's little crystalline vessel leaving the solar system and that galaxy. I mean, uh, Puzo's script really embraces DC because DC's uh, DC Comics uh, universe comprises 28 known galaxies, right? They say that a lot. Anyway, so we know that 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 Kal-El, baby Kal-El, leaves his galaxy to come to our own and our own solar system to get to Earth. But on the way, he gets to listen to Brando chat. This might be interesting. It's a very soothing voice for a baby that's flying through space. Now, according to one source I read, it's three years from the point of Kal-El's leaving his, his doomed home to arriving on Earth. You suggested that the kid is maybe four. I like your suggestion more than other things I've read because it places the landing, and I've done the math. I did the math today, Jason, so appreciate this. It places the landing in summer of 1938. Which is, okay. which is a callback to the first issue of Superman, which was the date on the cover is June 1938. So Superman arrives and I'm fairly certain either lands in 37 or 38 or maybe 39. I suppose it's, you know, depending on how old the kid is when he gets off the ship. So he's been traveling through space for a long time. Did he eat crystals, Jason? I don't. I don't know. That's all that's on the sh guys. All that I can see on this little ship is crystals. So I don't, I don't know how I managed that, but I like your suggestion that he's four when he gets out because that puts him out in 38. I would, I, I didn't get a chance to look at what kind of truck mom, pa Kent are driving, Oh yeah. but it looks yeah. like some kind of harvester. And I'd like to know the year. Cause if I knew the year, then I would know for sure. Probably, probably Clark crashes in Kansas, everybody, if you don't know, and he's found by, a really sweet couple, Mom, Pa, Kent, in what is, I think, almost, do everybody, the the filming here in Kansas could have been shot by John fucking Ford. It's as <laughs> if John Ford had grabbed a, 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 a Rockwell lens and shot Kansas. That's that's the that's the scene, and it's also another short segment. It's not hugely long. Uh, well, I, I agree with what you just said about. Uh, the reference to John Ford, because it's very clear that Richard Donner paid very close attention to, uh, uh, at some point, John Ford's attention to the horizon. Oh my God. Because, because in a lot, and, and you know what? I don't think I'd actually noticed that in watching this movie. And I've seen this movie a hundred times, but I noticed the horizon in a lot of shots. You know, when, when uh, uh, Clark and, and Martha Kent are, are standing in the wheat field and the camera's going over them, Mm -hmm. when they're in the cemetery. Uh, and there's something, you're right, there's something subtle about the lens, though, as well, that makes us really feel like that we are in, we're not in 1978, we're in the 50s. Oh, no, no. Uh, it, it just feels very different. 
So we, we only get a little bit of Clark as a baby. So Clark lands and there's some great gags in this scene and they're pulled off really well by, hold on here, everybody. Um, the character actors who play Martha and- Jonathan Kent. Phyllis Thraxter and Glenn Ford, respectively. These two actors are crucial in selling everything that happens and making the audience believe that we're really meeting a kid from another world. Um, without them, a lot of these scenes just wouldn't work. And that's what I was trying to say. I had to cut out what I did say and fill in with this. So the film doesn't work without these two actors who aren't in the film for even 20 minutes, I don't think. Cal uh, ship crashes, causing Martha and Pa to wreck. And they go check out the crater and they find this naked baby. You couldn't shoot that scene today, by the way. Right, yeah. um, he would have a di Clark Kent would have a diaper. In 1978, Kal-El is buck naked. And so they go back. They take Kal-El back to the truck. And Pa Kent is fixing the tire that blew out after the, after the impact of Cal's ship. And Martha's like, well, we got we to gotta take this kid. I've been praying for a kid my whole life. And uh, Glenn Ford, Pa Kent... Is like now listen, Martha, and she's like, he's like, this this kid's parents are going to be worried about him, and they were, but they're gone. I thought Martha was a little eager to steal this child, but what I, what I like about Martha is like, oh, he doesn't have any parents. How could you know this, Martha? She is like eager to steal this child from the extraterrestrials that dropped him off. She does not give a fuck. He's from some, he's from my cousin's back east. That's what we'll tell people. He's an orphan now. I mean, she's right. But uh, the, the great gag, I think, in the scene is when uh, the truck falls off the jack. The truck doesn't fall on Pa Kent. And they look over and they see this four-year-old kid holding the truck up like it's nothing. The camera kind of does almost a Spielbergian shot on Mom, Pa. They look at each other and they look back at the long line of the of the, the burnt out crater path. And then they look back at each other. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a great laugh moment. It's a great gag. And, but it's also like they know in that moment that Martha was right. right. She, it's okay to steal this kid, I, I guess. You know, but, but they're right. His parents probably aren't coming by. And uh, they know they've got a, a unique kid. And that's the, that's the end of 1938. And the next time we see him is in 52, and I've dated this, Jason, to 52 because, <laughs> because of Rock Around the Clock, 1952. All right, yeah. So yeah. there's a scene in the movie where uh, Clark is a – he doesn't play football, but he, he, he is the – he's basically the water boy of, right. of the football team. And uh, the football team is full of assholes, apparently, uh, because uh, – <laughs> The love of Clark's life as a teenager is Lana Lane, and they, they give this is another example of Puzo fan service. We get a we get one or two scenes with Lana being nice to Clark. Hey Clark, come 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 listen to records with us at the at the hop. I don't know what they say, I can't remember. A lot of wine in me, Jason. And then this fucking asshole football player is like, uh, Clark can't come. He's got a lot to do. And Clark's like, I just stacked up everything, and they look over and this kid, this this schmuck kid has kicked over all of Clark's work. Well, you know, that's not just a schmuck kid. That's Brad Wilson. That's more fan service. I mean, oh, is I, it really? Yeah, Brad Wilson was basically the Flash Thompson of Superman. I was getting ready to say Flash Thompson, but you got to it first. Yeah, well, but see, it's interesting. That scene, you're right, Lana. They never say Lana Lang. They never do. They, uh, they don't. She says, oh, Brad. Like, she does not say, oh, Brad Wilson. Like, you know... 
there's definitely a, a yeah that was fan service that i was mean for, yeah. we would we would call that today fan service it's so subtle and if you're a comic book fan i have to imagine there were superman fans in 1978 that were like <gasps> they gasped in in awe of this script and rightly so it, it's a great moment this is the next bit that i really love about this kansas scene is that donner excuse me pays lip service without saying the line at all about being more powerful than a locomotive. And I didn't notice that until I was watching it this time. Um, Superman uh, is a little pissed and he, he, he runs home, which is miles away from the high school that he attends. And he passes a train. Lois Lane is in the train as, as Clark is running beside it. And she says, Hey, look, there's a, there's a guy who passed the train. And her parents say, Oh, Lois, you've got such an imagination, yada, yada, yada. Interestingly, Noelle Neal is Lois's mom. Uh, Noelle Neal is the first Lois Lane, I think, in the the serials. She was in the serials. Yes. And and then the dad is uh, uncredited. General Lane. Um, Who played him? I don't remember. I don't remember his name, but he he played with her in the serial you're talking about. He was another another Superman veteran. Right. Um, Total fan service before we even knew the term. But anyway, Clark runs faster than the locomotive. He's more powerful than the locomotive. And he gets back to his home and the kids who dissed him back at the football field pass him. And they're like, Clark, how did you get here? And he's like, well, I ran. And then they're all like, you're a weird guy. But Lana thought it was kind of charming. You could see in her. Yeah, well, she was impressed. She was impressed. Her face is like, wow. You know, something really interesting that we haven't talked about. Maybe I don't know if you know this. You might have picked up on it. Jeff East plays uh, Clark Kent in the. I have questions about this. Go on. That is not Jeff East's voice. That I is didn't know this. Go on. Go that on, is go Christopher on. Reeve. Yeah. Yep. I'm actually impressed at how they. I don't know how they did it. If it was just how he modulated his own voice, mm-hmm. but it sounds like Christopher Reeve. But not quite. Like yeah. it's a younger Christopher Reeve. Yeah, yeah. And and he looks like a young Christopher Reeve. They did a great job with him. Do, with do you know if Jeff East plays young uh, Clark Kent? There are like several different actors who get to play Clark Kent: an ugly baby, an ugly toddler, Jeff East, and then Christopher Reeves. Jeff East. Do you know if they put prosthetics on him? I know he must have been wearing a wig because that hair looks like a wig because there are a lot of facial similarities uh, of the young actor Jeff East and Christopher Reeves and maybe they just look a lot alike but uh but you're right I did I only read this today that 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 Christopher Reeve went in and did voiceover work for Jeff East so Jeff East does an amazing bunch of acting I mean in, uh, facially body language everything he does is great but then Christopher Reeve somehow came in and did perfect voiceover for Jeff yes. East. And then we get, so after, after Clark gets back to, back to well, home. The, well, hold on, hold on. Sorry, hold on. sorry, 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 sorry. Yeah, I, uh, there's something I noticed that I want to point out. I, don't okay. know, I, had, I had never noticed this. It's the scene that you're talking about. When he gets past the train, there's this long shot, a horizon shot. Yeah. And the, and the Kent farm is somewhere over there. It's somewhere, we can't see the farm, I don't think. Maybe we can. Yeah. But... You clearly see the dust from the car yeah. coming from this side of the frame. From yeah. I'm using my right hand, and then you see Clark stirring up all this dust from the left side of the screen. Yeah, and they're coming together. Yeah, 
and it's way in the distance. I was just really impressed that they took the time to shoot that long distance shot, setting up the kind of collision of these two groups of in, Clark in, and the teenagers. So then we get set up from this bit of Clark getting back to the farm. Well, I ran, sounding more like Christopher, <laughs> Christopher Reeve than I just did. Basically what is Superman's quote unquote Spider-Man moment with great power comes great responsibility because we get this really nice scene and it basically has to serve for all of his upbringing in this movie because this is all we get. Basically two scenes, baby, teenager, and then he's off to the rest of the movie. It has to stand in for for his upbringing for us. And, and Pa Kent has the talk with him, you know, even showing off a bit, son. And they have this talk about power and, and the nature of, of ability. Because Clark is like, it's not... It's not showing off when a bird flies. It's not showing off when you can do what you can do. And Pocket has the homespun kind of counter argument, which maybe you, you, Jason, you probably know this movie by heart. I do, I do. <laughs> uh, what does Pa say to him? He says, are you listening to me? Like, when you first came to us, we thought people were gonna take you away. And the thing that I like about that that scene is that he kind of struggles to know what to say. I mean, he says, now you listen to me, but really he kind of struggles making the case that you're, that you're describing. Yeah. The only thing that he finally comes down to is all I know, son, is that you are here for a reason. And then he immediately goes back into the cloud of confusion. He's like, well, I don't know what it is. I, yeah. yeah. It's like, like, uh, and, and, like, he's like, maybe it's, nah, I don't know. Like, he but, tries it's, for, but it's not to score touchdowns is what he, right. what he lands not, on. Right. I, I really I really like that. You just said homespun wisdom. And that's it, exactly what that is. He and Martha, they know that he has some purpose. They could not even imagine what it is. No. They, they have no idea. They have no idea how to help him with it. No. They have no idea how to explain it to him. But in a way, in a way that is... Everything about the ideals of American, uh, of the American, I, I'm sorry, and everything that is American, the thing, everything that we hold dear about our ideals, about being an American, about being a good human, this working class, middle class Kansas couple have imparted him with everything that he will really need to navigate his purpose. They're not particularly religious. I think a religious person would have said, you know, God put you here. Like you said, Clark, Clark's dad, uh, his adoptive dad, doesn't have any idea how to put into words what he wants to say to Clark. What we get out of this scene, and one of the things that like, I find so touching, he wants to tell his son something meaningful. He wants to give his son some yeah. direction. He wants to give his son the, the, the snippet, the, the concise phrasing that will lay it all out. He does not have those skills. What he has is this kind of working class, heartfelt ethos of, you know, you know, just do the right thing, son, you know? Well, you know, it's kind of the New Deal aesthetic I was talking about. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, people, Dust Bowl survivors who are still in the, still in the Midwest, they yeah. have to go to the West. I, I get that feel from those scenes. That, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, this is very much, it's 1950s now, but the Kents went through all of that. They went through the depression. Yep. They went through rough times on their farm. And now they're just trying to do the right thing. They're yeah, trying yeah. To, to do everything that Clark needs. And they just want to do it right. But they don't know what they're doing. No, no. Well, I mean, they're, they're late parents. They're latecomers to being parents. They, 
Obviously, they're great parents. Of course, this leads to the scene where uh, I'll race you to the barn, Clark says to his dad. Luckily, he doesn't use super speed, <laughs> but, but he and his dad race, and then there's this horrifying scene. I found it, it's still very affecting to me watching it now. It was affecting to me then, but his dad uh, starts to turn the corner and he grabs his, his left arm, and he knows he's dead. I mean, you know immediately that he knows that it's the end. Um, he's having the thunderclap heart, heart, the thunderclap heart attack that his doctors had warned him about, and he says, "What does he say?" I can't remember. He says, "Oh no!" So he just, "Oh no!" And then, and then falls over. And uh, and then this scene is another scene that harkens back to the best of the American Western, the Ford. It the, it's a it's a long shot when Martha. Well, first we see Martha very close. She sees that he's fallen down, and she's like, "Pa, does she say Pa, or does she what does she, does she say his name?" It's Jonathan. Jonathan. She says Jonathan. From her porch, she's knitting or doing some kind of farmy thing, and that Kansasinians do. She sees her husband sprawled out on the dirt, and that's not a good sign. She's she's known since they found Clark that he had a. A bad heart. He it's blew just, it off. Yeah, yeah, he blew it off. He spent he spent too many years blowing it off. But I mean, it's horrifying. I mean, he had so much stuff. What what I got from that scene when he says, "Oh no," what I got from that scene is he had so much more to say, and so much more to do for Clark. And then he he dies right there. Hey guys, uh, as I was doing the polish edit, I noticed that Jason and I had a lot to say. We had so much to say, in fact, that uh, the episode's just comically, fantastically long. So I'm going to release the episode in two parts. Today's will be episode 5, and it'll be released on the 22nd. I'm going to try and release episode 5.5, which will be the continuation of this discussion today as well. But it might not be till tomorrow on Wednesday. And sorry about that, I just didn't realize how long the episode was going to be. As usual, share us on social media, share us with your friends, give us a five-star review on Apple if you're so inclined, follow us over at Podbean and follow us on Apple. Uh, We'll see you soon with the next episode. Bye-bye!